Well, hey everyone, welcome to the Dear Family Courts podcast. My name is Lisa Welter and I am your host. My friend Jen Kinesny is going to be taking a break over the next few weeks as we dive into circumstances that are very related to the topic of mediation, but we're going to take a deep dive and take you along the conversation in uh, a different way from what we've been doing over the last three months. So over the last three months, we've been offering pictures and ideas and stories of how mediation can be so transferable into not only uh, practices like within family law, but it can be taken into the church. It can be taken into the nonprofit sector. We see nurses leaving their professions and opening practices and social workers doing this. And so the whole point was really for you to just gain a greater vision of the possibilities in which mediation can play a role. When we think about where people get trained in conflict resolution, hmm, that seems to be sparse when we look across the landscape of of the uh, various educational institutions. In fact, I was trained in a seminary and we didn't have this training and so I had to find a local law school to get trained in this practice and found that while it was helpful for my work, I I was actually applying a very similar technique that lawyers had been trained to do and I was finding myself frustrated as a family mediator working in a congregation setting. And over time, I've, I've learned a lot. And so the next four weeks are dedicated to specific issues within the family mediation practice itself, which of course can be translated in other people's systems as well. But we'll root the conversation in family uh, issues. I have found that making some distinguishes or distinguishing perspectives of how the work we do is different from all the other different types of mediation out there. So first, first and foremost, today's conversation is what does it mean to exercise free will in mediation? Well, first, I want you to take note that there are different kinds of mediation. There is evaluative, there is facilitative, and there's transformative. And each one of them show up and approach mediation slightly differently. The original way I was trained in mediation was facilitative. You tend to see law schools, um, universities, it's the most prevalent type of mediation practice out there. Uh, Most people find themselves in mediators' offices that have been trained in facilitative, where the mediator is settlement-focused and they're trained in five steps to walk parties that are disputing towards resolution. But what I've noticed in facilitative mediation is people really are determining what neutrality means on their own. So it tends to be, um, it has an overarching theme related to a person's primary profession. So for me, I was a pastor. My master's was in transformational leadership. And when I was trained in facilitative mediation, I inserted my spiritual evaluative perspective into the work of mediation. I wasn't necessarily given the specific tools and techniques as a mediator to pay attention to neutrality. I was given kind of that torch to carry the responsibility of the process for disputing parties and then help them settle. Transformative mediation is different. It provides a focus on people. So it is about looking at what are people showing up with 
into the mediation space and how do they want to take responsibility for the process and the outcomes that are going to take place. So it's very much more creative in nature. Um, We do transformative family mediation and what we've done is we've taken a people-focused approach and then we take into account that most family systems that are showing up are highly anxious. There's a chronic pattern of somewhere there's some dysfunction. It's more destructive in nature rather than constructive. And we teach mediators to recognize how to be fully neutral and maintain that neutrality in the face of highly anxious or highly conflicted and chronically conflicted families and offering mediators a technique using restorative approaches to really uh, facilitate that conversation well. So a mediator gets trained in a way that is restorative and then hands off the process and the outcomes to the parties. So the mediator is really just coming in and setting on the tone for, for family mediation. So I share all that with you because it's really important to understand what type of mediation maybe you've experienced in the past. If you're thinking about getting trained, you would want to know what type of training you would want. Um, But when we think about what is that style of mediation offering when it comes to exercising free will, when we talk about free will, we're talking about the party's ability to make the decisions that they want for themselves rather than it feeling like an overreached, that's probably not even a word, an overextension of the courtroom in the mediation space. And what I'm finding through my research is a number of family mediators are kind of bringing their their primary profession, whether it's a legal profession, maybe they've been trained as a social worker, or a marriage and family therapist. I was guilty of this as a pastor. They're inserting how neutrality shows up in those environments because they weren't necessarily equipped with the right skills. They really actually were never told what to do with this. They just brought their ethical standards from their primary profession and brought it into the mediation space, which I have found seems to be compromising the free will of the parties And we're going to unpack that just a little bit more. So I know that's a lot of information, but it's really important when we think about how free will is actually exercised in mediation. And so I'm going to tell you a story about what my experience was like um, with mediation and what I was doing as a pastor. So I'd been trained in family mediation as a pastor from a local law school. I was trained in facilitative mediation and I inserted my my professional lens as a pastor into the work that I did. So I brought my faith into that and people would quite frequently ask me to speak to those faith components as they were making decisions. Everyone knew I was a pastor doing this, of course, because I was working more so in a church context. And uh, But I found myself regularly frustrated because of the, the deep, deep um, dysfunction and I, and this was, you know, and there's no blame in this because I struggled through this myself with my own family. But I struggled as a mediator to maintain a sense of neutrality because I was being pulled in various directions because of the deep level of conflict in those families. For those that are mediating, they probably know what I'm talking about. There was frequently this feeling of feeling triangulated. The parties would become so frustrated. Eventually, I would just hand them a card to a local Christian lawyer because I just did not know what else to do. I wasn't given the techniques to do that. 
But again, I just want to be really clear and honest that I was inserting my professional biases, my professional training into my mediation practice uh, because I just didn't have the tools. I wasn't trained in that idea of what neutrality looked like. At the same time, while I was practicing mediation within my own congregational context, I sought out mediation for uh, one of the cases that we were being sued in court for. And in that particular case, both of us had lawyers. The lawyers, um, I had requested to the court that we use ADR to settle situations. That was granted in Minnesota. And uh, the lawyers chose a mediator who happened to be a friend of one of the lawyers down the hallway who was also a lawyer as well. And so we went out to their office and I was placed in a private conference room with my lawyer. The other party was placed in a conference room with their lawyer and we never saw each other. And the mediator came in who was trained professionally as a lawyer first and was also providing mediation. He came in with a stack of papers, which I would assume he got from the court, and he proceeded to ask me a number of questions. He dictated what the terms were going to be talked about in that mediation space. He never gave me the opportunity to tell my story. I was not given the opportunity to select what terms were gonna be discussed. This was all discussed, this was all uh, pre-established probably between the lawyers before I had even gotten there. Now, as a trained mediator, I was thinking this is a very strange way to handle mediation, but I've learned that this is actually a fairly common standard practice uh, with those that have been trained from a legal perspective. He went back and forth four or five times and asked questions, but really the, the whole time we were in mediation, he grabbed hold of the other party's Uh, suggestions, what they wanted. And he frequently reminded me that this is how the court would decide. So quote unquote, this is how the court would decide. He would weigh in and give strengths and weaknesses of my position, of their position. And for me, I was shocked. I was shocked that this was how mediation was being conducted. I was shocked that this felt like an overreach of the courtroom where it actually felt very adversarial. I was cornered with two options and they were the same two options I was offered in court by the other parties. So we really got nowhere and the mediator took their side. And But he was good at providing some impartiality where he was giving us both equal time in our separate rooms. I have no idea what was talked about in the other room. I would just assume he was having the same conversations with them as he was with me. But by the end of that afternoon, it was considered an impasse. I actually declined moving forward because I was so frustrated by the way in which the mediation experience was taking place. It felt just as adversarial as it had in the courtroom. And this was um, several thousand dollars of investment. On top of having my lawyer there, we got nowhere. And as I've talked to other individuals, the phone calls we're getting in from my into our office at the Catalasso Group, we're hearing this a lot, like all the time. And I think what is happening is families are coming to a place where they are frustrated with the status quo, and they do not want to experience an extension of the courtroom in the mediation space. And so this is why I've chosen to do a, a series on techniques and, and issues to talk about in mediation 
so that you, if you are practicing as a mediator, you would consider different ways of approaching your work to really give families what they're looking for. They're looking for ways to protect their legacy and to build a future um, where they're not worse off than when they came in. And when we think about the Minnesota judicial branch and what they offer to families here in the state of Minnesota, I know Minnesota is fairly advanced, but I think there's a lot of states kind of coming into this arena. And so I, th- I believe this is, a, this is an applicable conversation no matter where you live in the United States. We just might be a little bit further down the path in Minnesota than other states, or maybe we have a little bit more um, definition. When you look at the website, minnesotacourts.gov, it suggests that ADR, mediation, is the preferred method for families uh, in conflict. And the reasons they give is it will produce uh, lasting agreements. It can also preserve and improve relationships, and it can be critical for the preservation of relationships and ongoing communication that needs to be fostered uh, for the long haul for families. And so the courts recognize that mediation is a preferable route Now, what we're finding in mediation, more specifically in facilitative, is that there's this overreach of an adversarial tone showing up in these environments. Sometimes it's the mediators bringing their professional lens and how they're interpreting uh, their role as a mediator, but sometimes it's coming from the lawyers themselves. And so today we're going to talk about what does it take for that environment to maintain that free will for parties to be fully exercised and as mediators, how we take responsibility for ourselves and how we show up. So when families are ordered to mediation or if a family chooses to partake in mediation without the courts kind of, you know, gently pushing them in that direction, courts have a preference for settlement. You can look at a lot of different statutes. There's one, Olam versus Congress Mortgage uh, company, big, big uh, uh, case back in 1999. I'm not going to talk more about that. I'm just giving you context of where some of this is coming from. Courts have a preference for settlement. There is presumption by the court that settlement agreements represent that in mediation, there has been an expression of free will. Or if you look at court language, it would say there's been an expression of self-determination. So I'm going to say that one more time. There is presumption by the court that settlement agreements represent that in mediation, the expression of free will or self-determination has taken place. It's very, very difficult for a, uh, a disputing party to go back to the courts and, and suggest that they have buyer's remorse uh, because the courts have this uh, presumption that settlement agreements represent they exercise their free will or their self-determination. Now, for Minnesota, mediation ethical guidelines specifically call out coercion. They ban this coercion in the environments because they're privatized. And so there's an, a, a level of weight on the role of the mediator to take responsibility for safeguarding self-determination. And the mediator must know exactly what the statutes say in their community or in their uh, jurisdiction uh, that should uh, give them kind of the marching orders in which they would proceed into the mediation setting. In Minnesota, 
I've taken this from uh, Nancy Welsh. She wrote The Thinning Vision of Self-Determination Within Court-Connected Mediations and this idea that mediation has become institutionalized. She wrote this up in the Harvard Negotiation Law Review not too long ago, and she said that disputants should be at the heart of every mediation process. They should be the principal actors and the creators within the process itself. That means parties would actively and directly participate in the communication and negotiation that occurs during Second, she says that parties would choose and control the substantive norms to guide their decision-making. That means the parties get to decide what values are driving the types of decisions that they need to make. They get to decide what gets talked about. Um, Third, she says that they would create the options for settlement. And last, parties would ultimately control the final decision regarding whether or not to, to settle their dispute at all. So when we think about what self-determination accomplishes, I think Nancy Welsh does a really nice job of clarifying what exercising free will looks like. When the disputants are at the heart of the process, rather than being um, consumers of the process, that means that for those who are experiencing mediation actually get asked questions on how they want the process to go, what types of substantive norms they want to guide the way in which they're making their decisions, and uh, and what types of options they want to creatively handle for settlement. I think this is really beautiful, and this is really what transformative family mediation offers to families. Not only transformative family mediation, but the whole bucket of transformative mediation falls within the vicinity of protecting and safeguarding this ability for parties to exercise free will. And that is coming from the training. The training of those trained in transformative or transformative family mediation, which is what Jen and I teach, is thinking about how to give responsibility to the parties, but then build a safe environment for them to to kind of untangle themselves from the destructive patterns in which conflict can can definitely do very differently and distinctively different from facilitative mediation or evaluative mediation we see this uh, expansion of evaluative mediation kind of creeping into facilitative simply because we don't see the trainers necessarily giving mediators techniques to maintain that neutral position. They're kind of allowing, from what I've learned um, and what my experience was like being trained in a law school, we're just inserting our professional lens and the ethics behind that and then conducting mediation as we we think would be best based on our primary professional trainings. For me, that was pastoral uh, work and leadership and uh, the training, or I'm sorry, the mediation that I experienced was from a, a, an, an a, attorney who was bringing their legal, analytical, um, kind of putting people in buckets of where the law would place them and giving them decisions and evaluating their circumstance based on that. And that really has some debilitating um, experiences left for the parties to wrestle through. When people are purchasing mediation services, there is an expectation 
that they have the full ability to exercise free will or what the court would call self-determination. So moving on a little bit deeper into this conversation, again, I'm drawing off of Nancy Welsh's good work from the Harvard Law Review. She says, I'm quoting her, mediation has become institutionalized by the courts and evaluation has become an acknowledged and accepted part of the mediator's function. Sadly, it is eroding the very definition of self-determination or free will, and parties are playing a less and less central role. We see still responsibility for parties to make the final decision on settlement, which was certainly the case in my circumstance, and it I said, no, thank you, and it came to an impasse. But parties are now cast in the role as consumers, largely limited to selecting from settlement options developed by their very own attorneys. Self-determination is being replaced with concepts reflective of the norms and the traditional practices of lawyers or judges and the court's orientation towards efficiency and case closure for settlement. I mean, this is a big deal, you guys. When we think about how uh, courts are requiring people to go into mediation, the court's preference for settlement, the court's uh, recognition that people are having the opportunity to exercise free will or self-determination in these environments, people are not having the experiences that they'd hoped for more frequently than not. This is why transformative mediation came into existence in the first place. The goal of Folger and Bush was to bring mediation back to its purest sense and uh, and to also kind of get its get mediation out of that institutionalized approach and placing mediation back into the hands of the disputing parties with that neutral uh, person guiding the conversation and offering uh, support and safety for those conversations to be creatively had. So guys, this is a big deal when we think about mediation itself. If you've been practicing mediation, perhaps you're a lawyer, a social worker, a family therapist, you probably have found yourself regularly inserting your professional bias or your professional lens, your professional training. And that makes perfect sense to me because I did exactly the same thing. But when we think about what parties are purchasing, and what they're expecting. We have an obligation to our clients to protect and safeguard this expression and exercise of free will or what the court would call self-determination. In the state of Minnesota, under Rule 114, there is an explanation within the advisory committee comments from 1997 saying that the, the courts are comfortable with mediators offering strengths and weaknesses on parties' positions, that it can be interest-based in nature. But again, that opens up the door for erosion of self-determination, and it's kind of reinfecting the atmosphere with that institutionalization that Nancy Welsh is speaking about. And I've felt it, I've seen it, and I'm hearing more and more people uh, coming forward, asking for mediators that have not been trained as lawyers. And we, Jen and I really just want to kind of help retrain what family mediation is supposed to look like. And so if you find yourself as a family lawyer, we are still for you. I hope that doesn't sound like we're against you. 
there's just a way in which you have to understand your role as a mediator. And then there's some very specific techniques that you would employ within the process of mediation to maintain that sense of neutrality. We are human beings. We have a natural tendency to fall to our default, uh, whatever our primary primary profession is, if we've been trained professionally in a, a particular way. And we just have to bring that into uh, uh, into a filter when we show up in a mediation space so that we can really give the best quality of mediation that families are looking for. So that's all I have for today. Guys, next week, we're going to talk about how do we as mediators, how do we lean in on mediation processes when lawyers are present? Because that can be the other piece causing this erosion of free will in the mediation space. Maybe you've been trained to do this, but you've been frustrated when legal counsel shows up and we have to take into account what they're good at doing and how to protect that space so that self-determination can be exercised to the fullest extent. So I hope that gives you clarity on what does it mean to exercise free will in mediation? What does it look like? And next week we'll dive into how do we how do we honor the legal counsel that are in the room, but also protecting self-determination? All right, well, we'll see you next week. Hope you have a great week. Take care.